Target ALS Foundation is a nonprofit whose mission is to accelerate ALS research into successful clinical trials. Since 2013, the foundation has built an innovative ecosystem for biomedical research that has catalyzed ALS drug discovery through collaborations. Target ALS envisions a world where everyone with ALS lives. Hello, everyone. I'm Stan Crook. I'm chairman and CEO of NLORM. Uh, and I'm also your host for the NLORM podcast series, which focuses exclusively on the needs of patients with nanorare mutations, um, which, of course, is what we do at NLORM. And today uh, we're joined by a, a really uh, interesting and remarkable person that I'm looking forward to, to chatting with, uh, and it's Dan Doctoroff. Dan, welcome. Thanks so much, Dan. You've uh, been a real inspiration to me, so it's I'm really thrilled to be here. <laughs> well, it's great because uh, uh, it's a mutual admiration society, Dan. Okay, that'll uh, make it easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Dan, uh, I, uh, I think we could spend a month or two on your remarkable career and 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 your life, but uh, but I won't. I promise. We we we'll, we'll do it faster than that. But uh, uh, why don't you just uh, introduce you know where you grew up and all that to to our listeners before we turn to your career? Great. Well, um, I grew up in a suburb of Detroit called Birmingham, Michigan. Uh, in fact, this past weekend, I was with two of my two closest friends from junior high school, um, where we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of our friendship, which was cemented with a risk game, a three-day risk game uh, 50 years ago. Um, and. Uh, then uh, after that, I went to Harvard, um, uh, worked back in Detroit as a political pollster, um, and then went to law school at University of Chicago. Um, coming out of law school, I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I went into investment banking at Lehman Brothers, spent three years there, and left to form a, uh, we call it today, private equity uh, firm. and. Uh, called Oak Hill. So that was my uh, early career. <laughs> well, I remember Risk. Uh, that, that was a really popular board game of world conquest, right? Exactly. It could get, it could get you know, like world conquest everywhere, fairly violent. Did you manage to avoid any <laughs> fist fights while you were at it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it got pretty uh, intense, but you yeah. know what? Going through... Um, experiences like that is what forms uh, deep friendships. And as I said, we've been best friends for uh, 50 years and that was a, definitely a milestone worth celebrating. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, is, is, is Birmingham near Gross Point? That's the only one I know because of that great movie, Gross Point Point. No, no, it, it's, <laughs> it's on the other side of, uh... of that. It's northwest of, of Detroit, uh -huh. um, but I love growing up there and uh, still have lots of friends, some family there. Um, so I, I get back there from time to time. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Detroit's an interesting example of some of, I think, things that you've been interested in in your, in your nonprofit uh, life. So you uh, ended up at, at, at Lehman as a banker. Uh, and fortunately for you, you, you left long before Lehman uh, had its the difficulties. Of course, you know, I had a, a, a wonderful friend who I credit with starting the biotech industry really and that was fred frank i don't know if you... I, I, wor I worked with fred uh not a lot but uh his office was just across the hall from mine and he was one of the great investment bankers um that i certainly ever knew and some people think of all time i agree with that i think you know when capitalism is, is at its best it's building and and i think fred did as much as anyone to create the biotechnology industry and the path for me and you in this conversation, really, and I miss him very much. He's, he passed away a couple of years ago. I know that. I know. Yeah. He's so, a wonderful man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I went into finance um, mostly um, because I wanted to earn enough money to decide to be free to do um, what I wanted to do, which I didn't know. Um, and then um, I got a strong sense of that um, just sort of gradually. In fact, um, you know, I was, became very interested in New York City. Um, I went to, uh, it's ironic that it's this week, the World Cup is this week, but back in 1994, I went to the World Cup semifinal game. Uh, I was uh, out at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Uh, and somebody dragged me there. I didn't even want to go. It was in July. It was 100 degrees. We took the bus. It took forever. But, you know, I walked into the stadium and it was immediately apparent that it was the most amazing sporting event I'd ever been to. You know, it was Italy versus Bulgaria. The stands were filled with Italian-Americans, Bulgarian-Americans, Italians, Bulgarians, um, face painted, flags flying. And I stood there because you couldn't sit down the entire match thinking to myself, you know, the amazing thing about New York is you could play that game with any two countries in the world in New York and it would feel exactly the same. So then I started thinking, um, you know, why is New York, the most international city in the world, never hosted the Olympics? And I left the stadium that day with this vague notion New York ought to uh, uh, host the Olympics. Um, and for the next, you know, 11 years, I pursued that dream. Um, I started the effort to. Um, bring the Olympics to New York. But what I realized is I was studying kind of the dynamics and the benefits of hosting the Olympics is the Olympics, which have real deadlines, could be a catalyst to real change in a city. Um, you'd seen that in Barcelona, you'd seen it in Atlanta, which was just about to have the Olympics. You'd seen it in Tokyo where they built the subway around it. Um, and there have been a lot of things in New York people have been talk, talking about doing for generations 
but they never were able to generate the political will or the um, or the financial wherewithal to get them done. And so I developed a plan with a lot of help um, that used the Olympics as a catalyst to dramatically um, change the city. Um, I, at one point, was raising money, and I went to Mike Bloomberg, who was just at that point a billionaire. He wasn't mayor yet. He gave money um, and went on our board. And then um, he ended up running for mayor. And when he ended up running for mayor, uh, when he won, surprisingly, after 9-11, he asked me to be his deputy mayor for economic development and rebuilding, which I did for six years. Yeah, that's so, pretty key. And, uh, and then you were actually president of Bloomberg as well, right? I was CEO of Bloomberg LP. Uh -huh. um, he, one day, uh, we, we sat in an open room in City Hall, and I pretty much sat behind him. And one day, he just turned around and said, you got a minute? And I said, sure. So we went sort of into a, a corner, and he said, you know, how would you think about going over and running Bloomberg, the company? And I said, what are you talking about? You know, I've never run a big company. I don't know anything about yours. I knew one person at the company. And he said, no, I, th I think you'd be really good. So I said the next day, I said, let me think about it. I, the next day I went to him and said, okay, I'm prepared to do it. Uh, I won't get paid the same thing that I got paid in government, which was $1 a year. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I then started about six weeks later, uh, just in time for the financial crisis. It also was a great experience. I, yeah. you know, led the company through the financial crisis. We almost doubled our revenues in seven years organically. Um, so that was a great experience too. So in, in all that, if, if, I, if I force you to, tell me the three things that you learned that were the most important. Well, I, I think um, through all of those experiences, um, the first thing I learned was that to get stuff done, um, and this is particularly true in government, um, you need to operate on two speeds at the same time. You need to be patient because there's process for everything. But at the same time, you have to operate with a sense of urgency um, at all times. And um, it's that combination of those two speeds that enable you to get really complicated things done. You know, in government, getting anything done um, is uh, really difficult. I initiated in my time in government something like 289 separate initiatives and we did all but a handful of them. Um, so it required a, a real uh, skill set of said operating on two speeds. Um, a second thing, uh, I think was just true for anything is you got to learn to listen. 
And, uh, you know, for example, when I started at Bloomberg, I knew nothing about the company. I really didn't know anything about the product. Um, I didn't know any of the people. For the first three months, um, I just listened. Uh, I think I met with 500 people over those three months. And you began to see patterns um, and come up with, you know, solutions. And this is a big company. I think at the time it had 12,000 um, people uh, in 90 different countries. Um, we were at that point still the, we were the dominant provider of financial news and data uh, and systems to the um, securities industry. Um, and, um, but we were starting to leak a little bit that had been masked by um, the um, boom before the crash. And so I started there, I think a couple months later, you know, the financial crisis started to unfold. Um, and, uh, but I had a pretty good sense by taking those three months um, to, to really listen. A third thing was you got to get rid of the deadwood. Um, and um, I, I uh, met with somebody because I'd never been a CEO of a big company before. And he gave me the advice, this guy actually who is the CEO of Uber today. Um, and he said, you really got to show people that you're going to be decisive. And one great way to do that is get rid of the deadwood. Um, and um, I, through my listening tour, I understood where those weaknesses were and um, got rid of people while at the same time announcing a set of initiatives that and strategies that were going to drive the company forward. So I, th I think those three things um, are um, really interesting. It's, it's very interesting to watch, for example, Elon Musk with Twitter today, because um, I, I'm sure he feels that he has to change the culture of the company. I fortunately didn't have to do that. I had to adjust it. Um, but you know, changing the culture of anything is incredibly hard. And uh, you got to be pretty dramatic in order to, if you believe that's needed, you got to be pretty dramatic to do it. Yeah. Well, those are all really important lessons and lessons I think that almost all of us can subscribe to. And that controlled impatience, you know, being patient for the long term, but impatient in the short term is a big deal, right? And, um, and so uh, those are, those are important and very well said. Yeah, if, if you don't act with urgency, particularly in a complex situation, you know, everything just dies of its own weight. So you've got to drive things. Obviously, you have to inspire people to drive them on your behalf if you're the leader. Um, and I, I think one of the other things that um, I I'm proud of is I, I, in all of those situations, I developed great teams. 
Um, and, you know, I may have been the leader, but at the end of the day, you know, the more you delegate, the more you can do. And, but you got to delegate to great people as well. Yeah. yeah. I think great leaders are sources of positive energy. Correct. Totally. And they leave the void is there and it's, it's, it's very apparent that it, that has that impact. And, um, and for sure you've had a positive impact on all kinds of, of organizations of all sorts, uh, but now you're facing something that you can't control. Right. You are dealing with something that um, will destroy you or could destroy you. Right. Uh, and you're a controlling person. Uh, I know a lot about controlling people. I'm one. How do you deal with that? Why don't you tell us about your problem and yeah. and and how someone like you tries to contend with a, a problem that can't be fully managed by yourself? Um, so uh, so the the problem you're talking about, obviously, is that I was diagnosed about a year ago with ALS. Um, and um, just a, a little bit of background. Um, ALS is pretty common in my family. My father died of it. My uncle died of it. Uh, they had a first cousin who died of, uh, had the same genetic mutation that they did, but um, he died of a related disease, frontotemporal degeneration. Um, and so for me, you know, I was vaguely um, aware that there was a specter hanging over me. I never, because I'm an optimist, um, I, I never expected to be diagnosed um, with ALS, but I was always vaguely aware of it. Um, and um, so uh, when I turned 60, I was really worried about time. I'm 64 now. And for the first time in my life, actually, I went to see a therapist to deal with the issue of time remaining. I was going to pack more in. Um, and um, we, he was incredibly helpful um, in helping. This is before I was diagnosed. Um, think about time, but ultimately, um, we um, started to focus on ambition and why it was so ambitious. And without getting into too many of the details, we had an insight and it related to the relationship between my mother and my father. And, um, you know, I came to the realization that I was ambitious because I never wanted to disappoint my mother. And uh, once I realized that and realized, of course, that my mother had died 20 plus years ago, I thought to myself, do I need to be the same way? Well, I never really changed. At that point, I was uh, running a company I started with Google called Sidewalk Labs, which was a really pioneering company focused on urban innovation. Um, so, you know, I thought that at some point 
I would probably slow down, but not for several years. So to some extent, when the diagnosis occurred, I was semi-prepared for it. Um, and obviously I'd witnessed um, my uh, father and uncle go through it. My college roommate actually died of ALS. I had an office mate at Lehman Brothers who died of ALS. Um, and um, so I, I think I was kind of prepared, but you're never actually prepared for this. Um, but something interesting happened to me when I was diagnosed. Um, I stopped thinking about the future. Um, and it wasn't something I tried to do. It just happened. Um, and I've always been someone who's obsesses over the future. I never actually enjoyed an achievement because I was always on to the next thing. But I think my personality as a result actually changed somewhat. Um, I became much more patient. I, I was not ever patient. Um, I'm sure you've sympathized with that. I became, <laughs> excuse me, much more present. Um, I stopped being competitive. Um, I just lived in the moment, started to live in the moment. Um, you know, a good example of that is while I was being diagnosed, um, my son and daughter-in-law were in the last month <clears throat> of uh, her, her pregnancy. So I think to myself, you know, I got, if I'm diagnosed with ALS, there's probably an 80% chance I won't live to see her turn five. And that would be just crushing to me once I was diagnosed, once she was born, because I just focused on the future, on the today. Um, I never think that way anymore. I just revel in her presence and her, um, development and I really live day to day. And that is um, with one exception that we'll talk about. And, but that is um, just a gift, a complete gift. And I don't know why it happened. I think in part, it's my optimistic nature stepping in to protect me. Um, but, you know, since I've been diagnosed um, and I find this surprising and a little weird. Um, I would say I have not been down. I've not been depressed uh, um, more than a cumulative total of an hour over the last year. You know, I'll get a bad test result or I won't be able to do something that I could do the day before or I'll, you know, occasionally recognize usually at like a family celebration that I won't be around for um, those in the future. But those have lasted like five minutes and then I'm back. Um, and I have been incredibly happy. I think in some ways I've actually become the best version of myself um, over that period of time. There's a lot of other reasons why 
Um, I'm, I'm, I think I've been incredibly happy. I've been just surrounded with love and support from friends and family. Um, I have, um, I've taken more, I stepped away from the company that I founded and a lot of other activities. So I have more time. Um, so I feel less pressure. Um, and, you know, I also watched my parents and others um, go through their illnesses, fatal illnesses, with incredible grace. And I think I, um, you know, want um, people to recognize that I'm doing the same. But um, overall, I said I've been incredibly happy. And the last part of it, um, is I feel like I have a real sense of purpose um, with uh, the organization that I founded um, when my uncle died, um, Target ALS, which has been a major catalyst to accelerating um, research in ALS into clinical trials. So, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I've been blessed. I feel like, you know, I look back on my life um, and I don't have any regrets. Um, I feel like I've just been lucky. Um, I've got a wonderful family. I've been married to my wife for 41 years. We met freshman year in college and we've gone out. We have three wonderful kids who, by the way, live in New York um, near us. Uh, we now have a grandchild. We have another one on the way. Um, I've got tons of friends. I've done career-wise what I wanted to do. I've engaged in outside activities that have fulfilled me. So, you know, I'm a lucky guy and, um, you know, that helps too. That's a wonderful story, Dan, and and it is um, about optimism and grace. You know, I when I saw patients, I I saw cancer patients, right. And very often, I was struck by how facing, you know, perhaps the one of the scariest sorts of diagnoses that a person can have. How often uh, they were at their best. How graceful they were. And, uh, you know, I think generally an optimist is an optimist all his life. <laughs> yeah, the way you respond to this, I, I, I think, uh, is just, it, it's consistent with your nature, yeah. your basic nature. And while I do think I have changed, um, as I said, to be uh, not focus on the future, be more present and live in the moment. Um, I think um, just being an optimist is a huge benefit. You bet. It makes, I think it's associated with longer and better life, of course. So what's the most frustrating thing you've, ability you've lost so far? What drives you crazy? You know, nothing has driven me crazy. I, I'll be completely honest. Yeah, I mean, some of the physical um things are frustrating so for example my uh, major symptom is respiratory 
the disease seems to be honing in on my diaphragm, which is responsible for about 80% of breathing function. You know, when I sit down like this, I'm sitting down, I'm fine. I don't have any breathing issues. When I stand or when I walk, especially, especially walk up hills, I guess the pressure on the diaphragm makes it hard to walk. So, you know, uh, I walk with walking sticks. Um, my right hand is very weak. Uh, so, you know, I'm learning to be left-handed. Um, and I think one of the things that I've accepted as sort of a fun challenge is adaptation. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to cut with a knife and a fork, but I've learned um, to do things differently. Um, I can't tie my shoes, but you know what? That's not a big problem. I just got shoes without laces. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, they excuse me. They also make great shoes that have laces, but you don't have to tie. Um, so you know, look. Um, if you take the attitude that um, adaptation is a, a good challenge, rather than getting depressed by the things you can't do, um, it's um, it's much easier. Um, and you know, um, I said I don't think about the course of the disease because that was my, you know, that was the the not thinking about the future kicking in. And um, that said, I not worrying about what's going to happen, taking things day by day and adapting successfully um, has been just, uh, as I said, just a complete blessing. So I am actually doing incredibly well um, emotionally, you know, physically I'm, you know, declining, but, um, I'm dealing with it. Well, I think that's great advice for everyone. Changes are coming very soon to nlorem.org. In March 2023, the new nlorem.org will launch with an updated design that features new pages for patients, physicians, and institutions. You can also learn how to access treatment, read heartfelt patient stories, check out our fresh patient empowerment program page, and more. Thank you for listening to the Patient Empowerment Program podcast. Now, back to the episode. Let's focus on target ALS then for a minute. Target ALS is focused on making, making sense of ALS, understanding the mutations, and then providing um, you know, advances in treatment. And I, I, if I understand it correctly, right now you're, uh, you're completing a fundraising that you hope to have done and, and that will fund it in even greater level than what it is now, is that right? Yeah, yeah, so just to give you a little bit of background on Target ALS, um, when my uncle died in 2010 um, and my dad had died in 2002. It was clear my family was hereditary. You know, when my dad died, I thought it was just some random freak thing. 
But when my uncle died, it was clear and my family was hereditary. And so, you know, it was very personal for me. I realized I'd do something. Um, and I didn't know anything about the state of ALS research. Or, but what I found was there had been almost no progress um, it, for the 140 years since the disease was discovered. It was discovered in 1870. Um, and so I hired a team of scientists um, to help me understand why there had been so little progress in the disease. And we came up with a set of hypotheses relating to the way ALS research was funded, um, the nature of research, it tended to be very siloed. Uh, there were IP issues that slowed things down. There was almost no common resources um, that the researchers could draw on to lower the barriers to getting research done or drawing new people into the field. And you'll, you know this, there was almost no involvement from biotech, pharma, or venture capital. So we decided to create a nonprofit foundation um, that would address all of those different problems um, around sort of the is that solutions to the problems. So what we do is four or five things. One, we only we fund consortia of researchers around vexing problems in ALS, um, including understanding the genetics, the biology, um, pathways, um, and potential solutions to them, all with the goal of accelerating research into clinical trials. Second thing we do, we fund a set of core scientific resources that anyone in the world can draw on essentially for free. And those include things like animal models, um, viral vectors, stem cells, uh, human tissue samples, um, both longitudinal biofluid samples, um, as well as uh, post-mortem tissue samples, um, antigens, couple others. Um, and those, oh, just over the last you know, several years, have been accessed, I think, on 500 separate projects. Third thing we focus on is getting um, industry involved. At the end of the day, and you're the greatest expert of the, on this, you know, at the end of the day, you're not going to save anybody's life if you don't have drug bowl uh, drugs. And it's biotech and pharma that produce the drugs. And for biotech, they need venture capital. So we have prioritized getting industry involved. Um, and um, well, we uh, do that by engaging them in everything we do. So they've led 50% of the consortia. Um, very unusual to have industry-leading academics 
um, but they are working together. Um, they're 50% of our board. They're 50% of, we have an independent review committee. Um, so people from industry and people from academia decide every single grant we make. In fact, when we started in 2013, um, we were involved with, I think, eight on an ongoing basis, eight companies or firms. Today, that number is 123, who we are actively involved with, which says something about the progress of the science um, and the fact that um, they think ALS can be a profitable area to focus on. Um, we also do other things, including um, we work with other diseases um, because we think we can learn from them and there are common pathways, biology, genetics. So we have a partnership with the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration. We have a partnership with Gates Ventures and the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Fund um, together um, to look for um, uh, biomarkers, for example. Because we are pretty egoless as an organization, um, I think we also have become a hub of uh, the research community, which also gives us the ability to bring all these different constituents together, industry, venture, nonprofits, academia, to focus on industry-wide issues. The biggest one probably is the search for a biomarker today for ALS or a toolkit of biomarkers for ALS. So, you know, we've built the credibility to actually bring people together as well. So I've been incredibly pleased. I'm, I'm not the one doing the work. We have a, a great team led by our CEO, uh, who you know, Manish Rezangani. Um, And when I was diagnosed, I said, you know, look, my last mission, if you will, um, is to dramatically scale up target ALS. So I said, without knowing whether I could do this, um, that I wanted to raise 250 million for target ALS. Uh, I started in May, I've made great progress. Um, and I'm, I think I'll get there. The people I know have been incredibly responsive. Um, and so I'm, I got a lot of work to do still, but uh, you know, we, we've developed a strategy um, it's got seven pillars to it. One of them is to address every single patient, rare forms of ALS. And obviously we have a partnership with you and, and, and Lorem to do that. You know, there are genetic mutations for ALS. There's 31 genetic mutations that have already discovered. Some have less than 50 patients in the world and we believe that every single patient should be able to live um, with this disease. And that's what we, uh, our mission is. Everybody lives. Yes. And partnerships with you um, will help us actually achieve that. 
That's great. And I think we probably close on on our and on our relationship, which really began just this year, and was I'm, I'm, I really don't know for sure how it all got together, but with Neil Schneider at Columbia and and Manish and you and and then we chatting and Lorem obviously we're committed treating every patient, you know, irrespective of of the mutation or or the number of patients and. So, you know, right now I think we're 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 treating together one patient, yeah. but that one patient is really an important test. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And and you know, hopefully we will expand that dramatically. We have so much respect for you, um, what you've done in your pharmaceutical career, but really what you're doing today. You didn't have to do that. Um, but um, you believe too that everybody deserves hope and you are providing that and we want to be incredibly supportive of, of what Enlorem and you are doing um, because, you know, we can't just um, focus on, you know, familiar forms of the disease. We need to expand that dramatically to random or sporadic but also the rare forms of the disease. And uh, we're just really proud to be your partner in this effort. Well, it's mutual. Um, I mean, ALS is a terrible disease. And I, we think that there's some things that we can do to fix some of it. And you're helping us do that. And obviously you and the organization you build are an inspiration to us as, as well as others. And so Dana, it's uh, it's it's one of the great privileges that I've experienced in a life of of uh, it, of many many privileges is that in the time I've been working on Enlorem, I've met just an amazing array of wonderful people and an astonishing array of graceful, noble, caring patients and you are the combination of a remarkable human being and a remarkable patient. And, and so this uh, interview has been uh, very important for me. Uh, and I'd like to close by just asking you to sum it up. What, what would you say to people who are listening to this who either have a loved one or themselves who have an illness uh, or are thinking of, of getting involved in some way. Yeah, I, I, what I would say is the progress that has been made over the last 10 years is really phenomenal. Um, and I think the trajectory for greater progress and even starting to save over the next several years people's lives or extend them, um, I believe that within 10 years, we will be able to look out to a period of time, and I can't exactly predict when that'll be, when everybody lives. Um, that is a possibility, but we need more resources, particularly focused on research. Um, we need um, greater collaboration, um, but given the trends, um, I think that is entirely possible. And that gives 
me hope, uh, particularly, you know, for my family and for the one in 400 people alive today who will die of this disease, we are going to get there. Um, and, uh, but we all have to work together. And I think that is beginning to really happen. We've never lived in a moment of such great possibility. I agree with that completely. And we stand on the shoulders of the great people who preceded us. Absolutely and, as well. And, uh, and we look forward to moving much more aggressively uh, with target ALS and really getting to a bunch of ALS patients, maybe even Dan Doctorow. Well, it's been a complete honor to get to know you and work with you. And I agree, um, the partnership between Target ALS and Enlorum offers incredible possibilities. So it's, it's really been a thrill to uh, be with you today, but more importantly, build on the relationship that we got already. Thanks, Dan. Give your grandchildren a grandchild a kiss for me, and right. we'll we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye bye. We hope you're enjoying the Enlorum Patient Empowerment Program podcast. We at Enlorum want to provide support to our podcast listeners the best way that we can. There's no better way for us to do that than to ask you directly. Do you have questions you want to ask Stan Crook? Stan will be taking questions directly from you and other podcast listeners and dedicating an entire episode towards answering your questions, AMA style. If you're a nano rare disease patient, family member, friend, physician, rare disease advocate, or you just enjoy the podcast, we want to hear questions from you. Please don't be shy. All questions are important and may end up helping other listeners. So don't miss a great opportunity to get your questions answered by the Patient Empowerment Program host, CEO of Enlorum, and the father of anti-sense technology himself, Dr. Stan Crook. To submit a question for the upcoming Q&A episode, email podcast at nlorem.org. That's podcast at n-l-o-r-e-m.org with the subject line podcast question. If you wish to be identified, mention your name in the email. If not, we'll keep your submission anonymous. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect one to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorum as NanoRare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorum comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorum or today's episode, visit enlorum.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at nlorem.org. Search nlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. This video is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook and produced with the help of the following professionals. Thank you for watching.